Welcome to season three of the Your Favorite Book Podcast. If you stuck with me for this long, I want to sincerely thank you. With this new season, there's going to be a lot of what you already love, great interviews with authors and readers alike, but also a little bit of something new, mainly in the form of new genres, everything from picture books to more speculative fiction, and now to something I'm really excited to talk about, some true crime. Welcome to Your Favorite Book. guest is journalist, professor, and author of The Murderous Dr. Kareem. Dean Job, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I am so excited to have you on the show. So you are our inaugural guest for season three of the podcast, and you are also our very first true crime writer. And so there's so much I want to delve into about this genre. It's not something I've gotten the chance to talk about before, but this will be really, really exciting. And we are discussing the true crime book, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, which I found extremely informative and very interesting. I was not expecting so much of what I read in that book, and it was fascinating. But before we get to all of that, Dean, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I, um, I live in Nova Scotia, Canada. I was a uh, journalist for a daily newspaper here in Nova Scotia for uh, about 20 years. Uh, and uh, some of that was uh, covering uh, the law courts, um, criminal, civil cases at all stages. And I, I really got a bug for, I guess, uh, what was contemporary true crime. I was covering trials as they unfolded. But my, uh, my degree uh, in university was uh, history. So eventually I combined the two. I started finding out about uh, legal precedents, old cases, uh, got curious enough to start recreating them. And uh, so over about the last 30, 35 years, um, I've written a lot of history, but it has tended to be through the lens of true crime. Uh, after being a journalist, and I had published uh, some uh, uh, local uh, historical uh, true crime stories in, in some books, I, uh, I was teaching part-time at the uh, journalism school, University of King's College, uh, was eventually uh, taken on as a member of faculty. And uh, so I've been a full-time faculty member for almost 20 years. And uh, more recently, have uh, have uh, changed roles to uh, teach part-time in the Master of Fine Arts and Creative Nonfiction program that uh, King's College offers, and uh, which has been quite exciting. And uh, uh, has been it sort of mirrors the the way my career has developed from journalism to books uh, to uh, to writing nonfiction um, crime accounts. That's so interesting. I I like that you managed to bridge you know a passion for history with your sort of legal experience writing about law and like you said modern true crime. And I'm interested in knowing you know just off the bat you know what's the writing process? How does that differ versus writing about contemporary crimes and more of a journalistic setting versus writing, you know, historical books. I imagine there's a lot more archival work, but beyond that, how do those processes differ? Well, the challenge is the same in both cases. It's, it's how do you make uh, events real for people? How do you make uh, descriptions, places vivid? Uh, how do you make characters come alive? Uh, but that's easier in a contemporary uh, setting because 
um, most people are willing to talk to you, at least have the ability to interview people. You can uh, see things, uh, you can attend a trial and get the color and the sense of uh, how events and, and evidence has unfolded. Um, you do the same thing in an historical context, but you can't do it firsthand. You can only do it through the documentary evidence you're able to amass. So um, that's what I do. I try to find every scrap of paper I can relevant to the case, but also relevant to the times mm-hmm. uh, and to the players. And uh, just to get a sense of uh, the wider story and context so I'll be I'll be looking for everything from uh, century-old photos of a particular street that has a building of interest to me that's long gone uh, to uh, actual coroner's inquest or mm-hmm. court transcript records or accounts of trials in the press. Um, so uh, again, similar approaches, uh, but a bit more of a challenge uh, in looking for the documents. But I I always tell my students assume that. There's a document out there. Um, I, I, I'm I'm even surprised, even though I know there probably are documents out there. I'm sometimes surprised at what I find that has survived uh, mm. uh, decades, if not a, more than a century. And uh, I'm always grateful for the for the search. And even when I find that a document has been lost or misfiled or is long gone. I find so much in the process. Uh, Looking for a newspaper account of a trial can tell me 10 other things about what was going on, say, in the city of Chicago in 1881, that some of which will be valuable for my book. Yeah, that that's really interesting because one of the great things that your book did, and we're going to be talking about your book as we go, um, it it provided just this great historical context for this this time period between the 1870s through the 1890s, you know, in England, in Canada, in my native Chicago. And so it was just so interesting to see all of these things come together and just providing a backdrop. And even if you don't have every little scrap of detail, sometimes just filling in the background like that gives you a lot more than you can anticipate. And so we're going to talk about that more in a bit. But I guess on a broader sense, you know, so this latest book of yours, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, it's going to be out in a few days at the time we're recording now. Um, you're no stranger to book writing. Like this is not your first rodeo. But at this point, is it still just as exciting having a book out in the world, or has it gotten old hat by this point? Well, the um, the detective work of the research is is so gratifying. I mean, and uh, uh, at some point, of course, you have to start writing, <laughs> and uh, those then they tend to go hand in hand. You. You, you've got a, a certain base of material and then you, you've got some very specific questions to ask as chapters and sections of the book come together. Um, but uh, uh, the writing, uh, then the writing sort of takes on a life of its own and you get involved in that. And, um, and then there's this strange uh, no man's land <laughs> between when you finally finish the book and when it appears in the world. Because uh, there is always quite a lead time. So uh, in a sense, when the book comes out, as, as uh, Dr. Cream is now being unleashed on the world, I, it's, it's rediscovering it all over again. And uh, both through uh, uh, my comments was, uh, as I'm asked questions, but also when I, when I start hearing and uh, absorbing the, uh, the insights and feedback of others. So, uh, yeah, so I guess there's sort of three discrete uh, 
uh, phases of, of a book uh, as it goes out in the world. And of course, at this stage, you're just hoping that, you know, you've done as definitive and as, as, as good a job of storytelling as you can and that it finds an audience. Right. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. So it's good that you can derive joy in all three of those aspects of creating a book, you know, the initial research, the writing, and then seeing it out there in the world. And I can imagine all of those have their own anxieties. And uh, coming to this book in particular, so like I mentioned, this book is absolutely fascinating to me. Dr. Cream was a figure I didn't know about at all, which I was surprised about being from the Chicago area and not really knowing about this rampage he went on. And so I guess I have a two-part question for you. What drew you in to writing about Dr. Cream in the first place? And then why do you think he hasn't been as well-remembered as, say, H.H. Holmes or Jack the Ripper or figures like that? Um, so just to, to fill in a little background, yeah, Dr. Cream is a Canadian doctor, graduates from, uh, comes from a wealthy family in Quebec City, graduates from uh, McGill uh, University Medical School in Montreal, the, the top medical school in Canada at the time. And at some point, something uh, switches flipped. Instead of going on to what should have been a promising career as a doctor, because he actually got qualifications from the University of Edinburgh, mm -hmm. uh, top top school on the planet at the time, um, he started to kill, and mm -hmm. uh, he killed his wife uh, after almost killing her with a botched abortion. He uh, was implicated in the murder of another woman, a patient in uh, London, Ontario, in 1879. Um, was not arrested, but was certainly under suspicion, uh, skipped town and ended up in Chicago, as you noted. And uh, so at every stage, he's, and then he started killing more women and started to develop a, a process where he would taint medicine with uh, deadly strychnine mm -hmm. and was sort of playing God with his patients. I mean, some women would die and others presumably, because he had a fairly active practice, were, uh, were surviving. And uh, he ultimately was convicted in 1881 of killing a man who was the husband of a woman he was having an affair with, went to prison and uh, served 10 years of a life sentence in Joliet before he was released. Uh, and I think my evidence that I found makes it a pretty convincing case that he bought his way out of prison. Mm -hmm. and uh, then did his ultimate uh, final murders in 1891-92 in London, England. But to get to your question of, of why isn't he as well known, um, I think because Jack the Ripper takes up a lot of space in the pantheon of, of uh, Victorian era, late Victorian era murderers, the endless speculation over who Jack the Ripper was means that there's been this afterlife for, for that particular uh, fiend. Cream's case is resolved, but I think in some ways, in many ways, it's more fascinating. And what drew me to the case, um, because it was such a sensation at the time, it's, it is interesting that it has been forgotten. But what drew me to the case was, how did he get away with it so many times over such a long period? I mean, he actually stood trial for a murder in Chicago and was acquitted. Mm -hmm. uh, that was before he was convicted and sent to prison. And even sending him to prison didn't stop him. So what were the mistakes? What were the missed opportunities? How was he freed to kill him again and again? And that led me to 
some bigger background stories, the the misogyny of the time, the the women who were driven to him, uh, desperate mm-hmm. for abortions that he preyed on, and also the state of uh, very crude at times forensics in the late 19th century, and uh, a very interesting look at sort of the rise of the modern detective and the detection that was used in this case. Yeah, there there was so much that intrigued me about the case of Dr. Cream. I mean, we talked about, you know, why we his case was resolved. And so that makes sense as to how we hadn't heard of him, even though there was that speculation that what if he's Jack the Ripper, which there isn't <laughs> a lot of evidence for. Um, but I thought it was really interesting thinking about Dr. Cream as a murderer. And this this is going to sound very, very, I guess, simplistic, but as a murderer, he wasn't very good at some of the things he did, as in like he his blackmail attempts were just constantly no one really believed them. And he he often just kind of worked at random. And and many times I was wondering, how was this man not caught? when he seems to be acting in a very haphazard way, sometimes these cases just didn't have a lot of planning to them. And you alluded to a lot of that in the book, as well as just now, part of it being, you know, the misogyny of the time, you know, he preys on women who are in low socioeconomic standing, often sex workers, women who are desperate for abortions, you know, women who don't have the means to advocate for themselves. That's where he sort of, you know, that's his MO. And then there's the other part, with which is his status as a doctor, which I found really interesting, just how much he was able to get away with just by being a medical doctor. Yeah, well, lots, lots of great things to unpack there. I want to start just quickly with the Jack the Ripper. Um, <laughs> there is this bizarre theory that somehow he could have been Jack the Ripper. It falls down very quickly because uh, he was in Joliet prison in the fall of 1888 when Jack the Ripper was mm-hmm. committing his crimes. That hasn't deterred some conspiracy theorists who've actually said, well, maybe he paid a double to serve his sentence, <laughs> uh, bribed his way out in 1888, could conceivably have been in love. Well, there's a lot of things I suppose are conceivable if you want to stretch, stretch the facts to the breaking point. Uh, but there's a bigger problem. One is that uh, it, it, there are different methods, uh, different methods of killing. Jack the Ripper uh, slashed his victims brutally. Uh, Thomas mm-hmm. Neal Crane was a secret poisoner who would taint medicine, convince his victims to take it uh, before bed when he was long gone mm-hmm. and killed in that fashion. But more importantly, the the speculation about him as Jack the Ripper is based on a, a, a just a little snippet of a news account saying that was published 10 years after his execution in the early 20th century, saying that supposedly his last words on the gallows were, I am Jack the, that as the trap was sprung, he was about to uh, confess to being Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty thin read of evidence because that uh, that appears... Uh, 10 years, as I said, after the execution, the it's attributed to a man named Billington, who was the executioner, who was conveniently passed. It was dead by then. So there's no verification. And then that story died for decades, but it got revived in some some features on Gallo statements. And then it just seemed to snowball into this, well, was it true? So as I traced back the paper trail, uh, I, I'm confident, no, he, he wasn't <laughs> Jack the Ripper and couldn't have been. To your more important point about was he a very good murderer, he was a very efficient murderer. Mm. Uh, I point out in the book that 
uh, no less authority in these matters than Sherlock Holmes, fictional as he is, Mm -hmm. uh, once said, doctors are the first of criminals because they have nerve and knowledge. And Ian Cream had that. He knew how much strychnine he needed to put into these pills. He knew how to disguise the bitter taste so people would take them. He knew the horrible deaths that would ensue. And as you mentioned, he traded on the trust of his victims. One of his victims, as she was dying in agony, was being chastised. She she didn't know Cream's name, but she had taken pills. And someone chastised and said, well, why would you take pills from a stranger? And she said, he wasn't a stranger. He was a doctor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that statement alone uh, just just proved uh, how that uh, that made it easier for him, his victims to have to be to trust him and be portrayed. But it also meant the police were often uh, reluctant or or unwilling to to make the leap to say that a professional man who was a doctor would somehow be a killer as well. Yeah. And then finally, on the point about uh, not being very good in some ways, yes, he had this this other thing that became balled up and, and, and part of his killing, he would send blackmail letters to accuse others of his crimes. And these were not very well thought out. Uh, he would, he never followed up on a lot of them. And when he got to England, um, he, uh, he uh, accused a, a doctor to the Royal family, a sitting member of parliament, <laughs> um, a, uh, an aristocrat who'd been in the news. Uh, just this scattergun approach, various aliases, and never seemed to follow through. Scotland Yard were getting, uh, were often being shown these letters, but they weren't putting two and two together. And it turned out some, and this was the the, the colossal mistake Cream made, some of these letters were in his handwriting. Mm-hmm. And a few of them betrayed a knowledge of the circumstances of the crimes that only the murderer would know. Right. They ultimately played a huge part in his downfall. That, that's what really struck me, you know, the the idea of handwriting analysis and some of the, we didn't have obviously the, the back then they didn't have the forensic techniques that we do now. And I kept thinking, you know, if he tried to do this now, he would have been caught in an instant. But there are still doctors who are committing crimes like this, albeit in more sophisticated ways and maybe not to the level that Dr. Cream provides. But we, we hear of stories of medical providers being able to get away with more than they should if they were in any other profession, because there is that level of trust that you give to your doctor. I, I work in the metal, medical field myself, and you know all the doctors I work with are wonderful people. But you you wonder just there's just so much trust that's innately given to not only a doctor but to a wealthy white man of means and education. There's just this level in society and almost this level of trust that just comes with all of that. It's often his word against you know, the word of people who are much less privileged in society and who wins. And that's a really good point. And and it just struck me that what we also have working here is not only that his victims trust him, but because they're desperate for a service that he'll provide in illegal abortion, mm-hmm. they're forced to trust them. Yeah. So uh, it's almost a double betrayal. They're, they're, uh, they're going not just to someone they should be able to trust, a doctor, but they're going to the one of the few doctors that will help them uh, in their time of need. 
Yes, absolutely. And so thinking about this book that you created as sort of a piece of craft, um, I found it really interesting. One of the narrative choices you made was to tell this story in a bit of a nonlinear perspective. So you open the book with Dr. Kareem being let out of the Joliet prison, which to, to sort of put me geographically, I'm about 15 minutes from Joliet. So that was a shock to originally open that book and see that. Um, but it was just, and then you go back and forth a bit through time and through place rather than going strictly chronologically, almost in a biography sense. And I'd like to hear from you as the writer, you know, what was your thought process in putting the book together in that way? Structure is one of the most challenging things, I think, in, in any writing, but certainly in nonfiction, because you don't want to start at the beginning necessarily, not the chronological beginning. Uh, then again, you, you, chron- chronology is the, the, is the tool you need to, to tell a story in a fashion that it's easy to follow. But what my editor and I discovered as we were trying to think of the best way to do this was the the advantage we had of Scotland Yard looking back in time. Um, just quickly, he gets out of Joliet. He almost immediately goes to London and he starts killing his final four victims. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part of the book. Um, once they've identified him as the chief suspect, um, then Scotland Yard says, and, and by then, um, his uh, full real name, he'd been going as Dr. Thomas Neal, which was enough mm-hmm. to prevent people from putting two and two together that he was this infamous Dr. Thomas Neal cream in, in North America. Uh, once they put that together and the newspapers were starting to say, this is the same guy, they dispatched uh, Frederick Jarvis, uh, an inspector from Scotland Yard, to uh, North America to mm-hmm. essentially trace his uh, his uh, murderous path from 1877 till his release in 1891. And that, that had that narrative possibility of having... Uh, a contemporary part of the story, because in a linear fashion, Scotland Yard investigation, they come to North America, and then there's going to be his trial in London. But it gave a chance to go back in time. And then with Jarvis as the glue or the the framework to hold it together as he's discovering stuff, to then take the the crimes in Canada, the crimes in Chicago, and recreate those in real time, if you will. Uh, which I think is important. I mean, the one thing you don't want to do is is tell the reader. You've got to show them. You've got to unfold the story. So uh, it was an attempt, I think, to just find a different way of telling the story. Uh, but it really hinged on the fact that I'm looking over the shoulder of Inspector Jarvis as he delves into Cream's past. And what I hope mm. I've done is the reader can now look over my shoulder and see that happening uh, as it unfolded. That's really interesting. And somehow I didn't put that together. I knew there had to be a reason for uh, framing the story in this way. And I thought it was very interesting. But now with this added context of sort of mirroring how Scotland Yard approached this case, because here's this doctor comes out of nowhere, there are these crimes committed. Oh, wait, there's this added context that we get later. That's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess my last question I have for you on this book, um, one of the things, as we mentioned earlier, that I found most interesting is the way you set the stage for um, just the overall time period. We've made references to Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle and how his work really took off at the time. And 
I find it really interesting just how little we as a society have changed when it comes to our overall fascination with violent crime. So back then there were these detective stories and now we have true crime books and podcasts and documentaries. And do you think there's really that much that's changed or are these just new media for the same fascination? Well, that's a really good point. And, and one, of the, the, one of the aspects of my book is that uh, is really where does cream and, and the sensation he caused, where does that fit sort of in the public mind? Because, uh, yes, you said there, there's the rise of the detective, the fictional detective like Holmes. Uh, and, uh, but this had been preceded by incredible, morbid, uh, ghoulish fascination of the British public for uh, murders, the bloodier, the better. Mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes isn't as bloody as, as, right. as anyone who's read is. As, they're more cerebral, obviously, because they're, they're about they're the flip side of the coin. There, there's the murders, and then there's how they're detected, or in Holmes's case, mostly it's mysteries, not always mm-hmm. murders. Um, so I, I was very intrigued by that, as, uh, as you said. Um, so one, and one thing I found in my research was how little has changed in the sense that there was this, this 19th century, uh, fascination with true crime, sometimes the bloodier, the better. And, um, I saw a quote in, in, as I was doing my research and it said, um, there's, if there's anything the newspaper reader of today likes more than anything else, it's a gory crime with all the trimmings. So I saw that and that, you know, that that could be said about us today, but that actually appeared in the Chicago Tribune in 1880. And it it is quite fascinating to see how um little things have changed. I mean, there's definitely a true crime uh a renaissance right now. Right. But I'd like to but I think I think one of the reasons is there's really a window into the past or society that you you really can't get anywhere else. Yeah, you know you you've got the um, the overall scheme of official things that happen. You might even have good social history about people's lives, but to see how people really lived and how they thought and what they thought was important, and I suppose the depths of their potential depravity, like cream, is is court cases show that. People have to take the stand and talk about things they wouldn't have talked about. You know, why were they in this compromising position? Why were they running with this bad crowd? Uh, why were they involved in in, in crimes? Um, right. It really gives a different window on the past or or on society. Yeah, it's sometimes a, a, a high profile crime is really one of the main ways we get a detailed view of a part of the past. I mean, otherwise I feel like you don't get that many primary sources about aspects of the past that aren't related to crime because those are so well documented. And I think that transitions us really nicely to uh, the other book we're going to talk about today, which is the book you chose for this episode, which is Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. And so this is a pretty recent book. Um, So this came out in 2017. And for those of you that have never read this book, I'm going to provide a brief summary And we're going to do our best to avoid spoilers for the book. Um, This is a really interesting case. And I really think this book is worth a read. So uh, here's my brief summary of it. So in the 1920s, a reign of terror in the Osage nation began. The Osage, wealthy due to their associations with oil-rich land, but lorded over by white guardians, 
find themselves dying one by one at mysterious hands, shootings, poisonings, and sometimes at random, sometimes in a cold, systematic way. Um, And then the Killers of the Flower Moon follows this conspiracy, its victims, perpetrators, and investigators, and places them in the historical context of the day. And so in many ways, it's very similar to what we were talking about uh, with your book, Dean. And so I'm interested in thinking, in asking you, where were you when you first read this book and what were your overall impressions? Well, I, I read it when it came out in, in 2017 and I was very familiar with David's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I hadn't really thought so much about the, uh, the parallels. Um, what, what struck me about the book is, is that David is such a masterful storyteller. And then that mm-hmm. is another aspect, what I was talking about, why, why true crime is a way of looking at the past. Uh, they're inherently dramatic stories. I mean, the stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, injustices have been created. Uh, there are, uh, uh, madmen or, or murderers or lawbreakers on the loose. Uh, it's, it's the classic good versus evil. And this was this story captivated me because uh, um, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, this uh, campaign of terror, uh, these this these uh, uh, string of serial killings of of members of the Osage tribe um, in, from uh, a greedy, murderous uh, a group of, of men who were uh, desperate to get their hands on their oil wealth. Um, it's just so well told. And another another thing David was able to do with his book that's hard to do with, with true crime and especially with historical true crime was to make it a whodunit. Mm-hmm. Um, I really didn't think that was possible, say, with Dr. Cream because he's so, well, if you read the title, you, you've got <laughs> a little bit of a spoiler right there. Right. But, um, but he was able to just draw you into the story and these mysterious deaths and he's able to chronicle them and he's got you hooked and then then the classic uh turn to the uh the investigator who's uh who's going to be on the trail and try to solve these murders and bring the perpetrators to justice yeah uh a former texas ranger named tom white who's uh, this larger than life frontier character so this book has just has uh, so much going for it. Uh, the story has so much going for it, but the book has so much going for it because of David uh, really seizing on these storytelling possibilities. Absolutely. And I think storytelling is the right word. And I didn't think it was possible to make a true crime book that was a whodunit either. I guess if you know about this case, then maybe it's not as much of a whodunit. But for someone like me, like you, who hadn't heard of this story before, I was captivated in just wanting to get to the bottom of things and wondering, you know, how deep does this conspiracy go? And it really keeps you guessing. Um, But what I think is really good about this book is the level of personal detail um, in terms of the the number of characters we're able to sort of flesh out in a book like this. So I guess the best example is we get a really close view at the unfortunate Molly Burkhart, who loses so many family members in this reign of terror. And uh, David Grand does just such a great job at making her sort of a focal point of this book. And it really reminds you that even though this is a historical murder, everyone involved in this is long dead these were real people and these were real crimes. And it's not just something for us to be fascinated by. And when you have these real characters in there, you remember that these were human beings who suffered and lost loved ones. 
And there's another aspect to David's story that's uh, that's really important in this book, is that he's not satisfied to have done as as good a job as he could to to show who was responsible and mm-hmm. how the justice system dealt with him. He dug further and deeper into the records, and amazingly. Uh, found dozens and dozens of of, of additional cases uh, over a longer time period than had ever been thought. Uh, it was mm-hmm. originally thought that it was about a four or five year span in the early twenties. He found uh, uh, cases of sudden death on or, or a suspicious death, violent death uh, before twenty one and into the depression era. So yeah. uh, this was this just showed a level of. Uh, of uh, commitment to the story and really just trying to, uh, uh, you know, do his best to correct the record. And um, uh, one, uh, a statement that he makes in the book uh, stood out for me is that, uh, you know, anyone, anyone, he's even able to make a good case of who one of the unpunished murderers was. Mm -hmm. And he notes that, well, it's too late to prosecute to, to do justice that way. History can often provide at least some final accounting. And yeah. that's what he's done here. Uh, he's, he's, he's wanted to give the definitive account and um, by, by digging even deeper and uh, by, in a sense, writing himself into the story because by uh, towards the end of the book, we're following his quest to find documents and to uh, find relatives, surviving relatives who can help fill in the, the story as well. Yes, absolutely. I think the epilogue, those last chapters were probably my favorite part of the book, just because it showed, like you said, this commitment to getting to the truth, to uncovering what was a larger conspiracy beyond those couple of years, and also just discussing in general that this is not just an isolated crime issue. This is an ongoing issue. It's an issue of race, of class, of you know power structures in the uh, in America, but also in just the Western world. And to me, this just felt like it came at such a timely point. And I feel like I need to bring this up because of the content. And I'm also speaking to a Canadian, but with the recent articles about some of the residential schools and the unmarked graves that were found at some of these residential schools for indigenous people. And we saw that Molly went to one of these schools and it was just part of this overall effort to sort of strip culture away from indigenous people. You just see that this is just one piece in just such a huge monumentally large problem. And it's really important that, uh, uh, we remember that uh, for most people, unless they've read this book, are probably not even aware this happened. And, uh, you know, David, uh, that's part of the book, is that uh, these um, uh, these murders were, uh, were quickly forgotten. And it's really important they not be forgotten, as you mentioned, as, as the residential schools, uh, the finding of unmarked graves of children uh, over decades, um, and they we're over a thousand and they're only just starting to search. It's, it's mm-hmm. now sparked a reckoning in, in the United States, uh, by my understanding that calls for, uh, for more of, uh, of searches of residential type schools, uh, in, right. uh, in the United States and all of this. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's part of a reckoning and, uh, it's really important to, to, uh, I think bring this past things like this forward, um, because it's shocking. 
you know, and uh, the 1920s is a century uh, distant, but uh, this this isn't the Wild West frontier and all the abuses yeah. and injustices of those times. I mean, this uh, this uh, is uh, this is modern history. And to to think that this kind of systematic uh, murder was uh, uh, was allowed to go on, uh, it uh, you know, with the local authorities powerless to deal with it, and ultimately took uh, to get any measure of justice, it took uh, uh, the uh, precursor of the Federal Bureau of Investigation to send in undercover officers to finally at least unearth some evidence and uh, start pointing at some of the perpetrators. Yeah. And I think that leads nicely to my next point. So overall, I really enjoyed this book. And if I had to offer some criticisms of how this book was put together, I think it's when the FBI is brought in and some of those aspects of the investigation piece can feel a little muddled, a little hard to follow. And it was interesting to me, the book is sort of, you know, subtitled as part of the birth of the FBI, but the FBI, as we think of it, isn't really involved here. I mean, we see the cameos of J. Edgar Hoover um, and then, but mostly it's about uh, Tom White and about some of the other people that worked with him and about more of these individual figures rather than this larger structure in the United States government. To me, the United States government was more involved in setting up these systems of guardianship and allowing for the oil to be distributed in such a way that really hurt the Osage community in the end. Um, so I guess some of those aspects were a little hard to follow at points, but hey, maybe you all are more attentive readers than I am. <laughs> well, I think you make a good point. And, and I suppose one of the reasons the FBI seems a little fuzzy is because it doesn't exist at this point. Mm-hmm. You do have the figure of J. Edgar Hoover, you know, and and his his bid to, to build uh, the empire that becomes the FBI. And um, but it is it is kind of a almost a David and Goliath story. You've got Tom White wanting to do the right thing, battling the bureaucrats, but also as he tries to uh, catch the bad guys. And uh, I think there is that narrative uh, uh, as well that uh, that does help propel the story forward. Right. That's a really good point. It's sort of this combination between like sort of this face off between Wild West justice and, you know, doing things in a more organized, dignified sort of way. And we see sort of this intersection of those with this whole plot. And overall, I think this book was very, very interesting. It definitely shed some light on a piece of history I wasn't aware of, and I feel more people need to be aware of. And before we go on to further recommendations for further reading, I just want to tell all my listeners, I know we haven't had much true crime on the show before, but both of these books we've talked about today, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream and Killers of the Flower Moon, these books are definitely worth your time. If you're someone like me that hasn't read a lot of true crime and are more into the documentaries and podcasts, I really think these two books are a great place to start and definitely keep an eye out for Dean's book when it's out on shelves. And so, Dean, at this point, um, since you're an experienced true crime reader, a true crime writer, I'd love to hear from you if you have some recommendations for our listeners for other books they might want to pick up if they enjoyed these. I review a lot of true crime um, for, uh, uh, well, Chicago Review of Books, uh, Washington Independent Review of Books, but I also do uh, six times a year a column for Ellery Queen's uh, Mystery Magazine on uh, true mm. crime reviews. So I read so many, it's sometimes hard to, to narrow it down. Uh, but I, what draws me to them 
is not necessarily the crime. It's the quality of the writing and the research and mm-hmm. uh, the voice of the author. Uh, one uh, just absolute standout for me uh, was uh, Furious Hours by Casey Sepp. And uh, Furious Hours is about the uh, true crime book that Harper Lee, the novelist Harper Lee, didn't write, that mm. she investigated this serial killing uh, preacher in uh, in the South in uh, in her hometown. And uh, this was after the success of To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, it's just an absolutely amazingly well-told story. Um, and uh, so, again, not really conventional true crime in the sense, because a lot of it's a, it's a big part of the biography of Harper Lee. But uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of crime, obviously, at the heart of it. Um, so I'd, I'd have no hesitation recommending that. Um, Karen Abbott uh, writes as Abbott Kaler now. Uh, her book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, on a jazz age uh, prohibition uh, uh, story of a, uh, a bootlegger named George Remus in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, is just, a, a, again, a, a sort of a, a roller coaster ride. Uh, a great narrative, uh, lots of drive, and really delves into. Uh, uh, the politics of, of the time as well, and and uh, and the corruption uh, wrought by uh, prohibition. So uh, those are two um, off the top of my head. And another final one that I, I think is very timely is um, called uh, "Race Against Time" by Jerry Mitchell, and it's a story about his efforts as a uh, reporter to uh, unearth. Uh, uh, the truth behind uh, a long, uh, long ago cold case, the uh, murders of, uh, of civil rights uh, uh, activists who had gone to uh, Mississippi in the 1950s. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, it's a memoir slash investigation because he, he's central to the book because his work, his investigation uh, led to ultimately uh, charges and convictions uh, in the case, so uh, that's one that uh, uh, is uh, that I that I uh, encountered that I thought was um, really really well done and a and just a riveting story because uh, uh, the odds seem impossible. Uh, no one wants to talk to him. Uh, the trail is very cold, but he just keeps plugging away, and I suppose brings it full circle as a as a former journalist who's who's done some investigations i uh all i could do was cheer him on and be uh in awe of his abilities thank you so much for those recommendations that I, I love how varied they are and how they sort of cross the uh the boundaries of true crime and sort of get you at all the different spectrums that there are and the harper lee one to me sounds especially fascinating i'm going to definitely pick these up and one final question for you before we close out and i guess this is a pretty basic question, but you, you, as you were talking about, you know, reading so much true crime and sort of ingesting so much of it brought me back to an interview, um, an episode we did last season with sports writer, Jeff Perlman and Jeff Perlman writes sports books and he reads a lot of sports books. And so asking him the question, you know, how do you tell a good sports book from a bad sports book? And he had insight on that, but I want to know from you, what's the main difference between a really good true crime book and a not so good one? Well, um, I, I guess it's 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 a form of literary teleportation. Does it take you to a different time and place? Does it immerse you in the the uh, the setting and the the times? 
and that's hard to do, but it's it's but it's not impossible to do. So if someone can do that, if a writer can truly hook you into the story uh, and and bring you along, I, I think that's that's so I guess it's the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, you know if you read, you don't want to read the same thing, so you are kind of looking for, um, unconventional structures, uh, different ways of, of telling the story, uh, because really, uh, I mean, readers want that because it makes the book more enjoyable, but writers want that because they're looking for ideas that they can uh, perhaps play with and uh, to some degree uh, uh, incorporate into their own practice. Mm, that That's a great way to put it, you know, this combination of novelty, just pure uh, storytelling skill. And, you know, I mostly feature fiction writers here, but I think across all genres, the thing that carries you through is just good writing, good storytelling, no matter what genre you're writing in. Those are the common factors that really make a book worth reading. And so, Dean, thank you so much for the time and the insight you've brought today. Where can we find you and where can we find your work? Well, I am. I'm on Twitter at, at Dean Job. Uh, my last name's called J-O-B-B. Uh, my website, www.deanjobb.com, has all my books, including um, all of the great uh, uh, feedback I've been getting on uh, the case of the murderous Dr. Cream. And, um, yeah, my work's there. The, the book, uh, as you said, is coming out the week of, uh, July, uh, comes out on July 13th, uh, available everywhere. And, um, uh, I hope, uh, I hope it finds an audience. Absolutely. I think it certainly warrants an audience. I definitely want to urge you all to check this one out and the rest of Dean's work as well. And, you know, I'm always happy to feature a fellow reviewer for the Chicago Review of Books. So thank you, Dean, once again for your time. Well, thank you very much.